Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. Joining me today is the exuberant Miss Bedi Ortho. Bedi is the co-founder of DivTal, an online job platform that connects inclusive organizations to migrant or culturally and linguistically diverse job seekers. She is a passionate human resource professional with over 10 years of experience within the finance industry. Her areas of expertise include graduate and early career talent management, diversity and inclusion, change in communications, and recruitment and program management. Betty is involved in numerous diversity and inclusion committees and advocates for minority women and youth empowerment. Diftal was born out of Betty and her fellow South Sudanese Australian co-founder Lorna Deng, both seeking to improve employment opportunities for job candidates from underrepresented minority backgrounds, having faced and overcome their own employment barriers in Australia. Now, from the moment you encounter and engage with Betty, it is abundantly clear that she is a force to be reckoned with and a force for good and equal. She's a driven co-founder and a great example of a committed entrepreneur who is currently successfully navigating both the startup and corporate HR worlds, all of which I'm really excited to hear more about during our conversation today. Betty, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me today. Thank you so much, Dashi. Um, I always love hearing an intro. Like you kind of step back and you're like, oh, not so bad. You know, we really, I, I'm a believer in letting it all sink in. So um, I was just sitting there letting all of that sink in. <laughs> so no, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And so Betty, to begin, um, please share your journey from South Sudan to Australia, and some of the key things that shaped who you are today and the work that you do. Thank you, Dashi. Um, I'd, I'd like to first start by acknowledging um, the traditional owners on the land on which we meet on today. I'm on uh, Wurundjeri um, land um, and I am right on the banks of Maribyrnong River. So I'd love to really acknowledge um, the beautiful land where I get to kind of walk up on um, and walk along um, most days. And it kept me very sane um, over COVID and really want to acknowledge that. Um, I want to acknowledge any uh, First Nations people that are listening um, and the traditional uh, custodians on this land, um, their elders as well. Uh, And um, yeah, all of you today on the call, uh, really, really nice to be a part of this conversation. So a bit about me. Um, It's always interesting looking back into your own journey because I always say that a lot of my story really is based on my parents' story. So I don't want to take away from that, but essentially 
my parents, um, you know, had us right in the midst of civil war in um, South Sudan when we were um, in civil war with um, North Sudan. Um, and essentially, uh, we were born around that time. At that time, it was um, my three siblings. Um, and then uh, later on, um, we... My, uh, well, migrated or essentially we were refugees in Libya. Um, because of the civil war, my dad was able to identify there was opportunities in Libya at the time. Uh, Gaddafi was asking a lot of um, skilled migrants to come through to teach um, English and some of the more kind of professional um, academic type of skills. And my dad is a, was and is a linguistics um, uh, university teacher. So my dad, you know, packed us up and said, civil war um, was going to last for a while here in South Sudan. Let's take our chances in Libya. So me and my three siblings then moved um, to Libya. And uh, um, my other two siblings were born there. We were there for about three, four years. Um, and my dad went on to teach there. Obviously, me just reflecting on how hard it would have been for my dad being a South Sudanese um, um, dark-skinned male teaching, um, uh, you know, rich kids in Libya how to speak English. I really never really think about it, but he would have gone through so much racism and so many things that we didn't know about. All we knew was Libya was a lot more friendlier in terms of, you know, having your normal survival type of things. So food was ample there. So that was some of the perks we got. Um, you know, we were provided with food and a place to stay and no bombs going off through civil war. So uh, we were lucky in that way. And I was able to start kind of prep there. And that's where I saw the racism because, you know, my older brother would have rocks thrown at him. And essentially um, then for us, it was not racism. It was just your your dark skin, your refugee in another country. And it was just a part of life, um, which then took us to Egypt because uh, essentially Egypt was the way for you to get a visa into one of the lucky countries. So my family and I picked up, moved to Libya, to see if we could get a visa outside um, of Africa to move to one of the lucky countries. Um, and my dad was able to, again, kind of utilize his um, skills in academia to get us um, into the visa process quite quick and uh, allow us to get picked uh, to be able to move to Australia. Um, funny fact there, when they asked him, where do you want to go? Because there's a few lucky countries. Do you want to go to the UK? Do you want to go to um, America? Or do you want to go to Australia? My dad's like, too many guns in America. Um, you know, the UK, you know, sounds okay, but I don't know, like, what's that other one, Australia? <laughs> we'll go with that one um, as long as it's not too cold over there. So uh, we packed up our bags and thus moved to Australia. And that's how my journey started here in Australia in 1998 as, um, you know, very early wave South Sudanese migrants coming into Australia. Um, you uh, if you look at statistics, you'll see that a lot of African migrants moved around 2000. That was the large wave, but we came even earlier than that. And that's essentially um, us migrating to Australia. And essentially, I grew up in Australia. I see myself as Australian. And Dashi, I know, um, you know, we're going to dive in a little bit more about my journey in Australia and essentially what I've had to overcome. But I thought maybe I'll pause there to kind of get into that's where we kind of settled in in Australia in 1998 with my family. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I've never heard 
the, the reference to the lucky countries quite in that way, even though I know and similarly as my parents also immigrated during civil war in Sri Lanka and and it was very much it was it was the US, Canada, yeah. Australia, the UK, and all of the siblings chose a different one for, for different reasons. We so somehow ended up in the UK, but I actually have more extended family out here here in yeah. Australia. So it's interesting to see that route that's commonly taken yeah. uh, in the midst of these things. Uh, how old were you when you moved to Australia then? I would have been about 11, 12, or even younger, actually. I would have been about like nine, because 1998, um, not to give away my age, I'm 32 now, so do the math. <laughs> I always struggle with how old, but I think I was about seven to eight, because yeah, I, I got put into grade three, I think. Um, and, you know, it was the usual, do you know how to speak English? And I was quite lucky that my dad, because him being a linguistics, he actually does um, linguistic within the English language. So he taught us English before we came. Um, and they essentially <laughs> were like, oh, you actually know how to speak a bit of English. Good for you. Um, we'll keep you in the grade level you're meant to be on. <laughs> you probably had better grammar than a lot of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which I quickly like realized, though, Dashi, doesn't take you very long here a long way here in Australia are you like I know good grammar and people are like what's that if anything grammar really confused me because I'd listen to everyone speak and I'm like this is not what my dad told me it would be like <laughs> but yes I love that so yeah so you really yeah, grew up here in terms of your schooling your education and where you got to today um you'd already shared the the difference and the uh, and how you're treated um, in Libya coming over from South Sudan. How has bias shown itself to you growing up and into adulthood in your career here in Australia? Mm. And I think that's a really interesting question in that, you know, did I, I, I think I said um, in Libya and even in Egypt, um, it was just a way of life where we knew we were different and we knew we were not liked. So I would say there was a lot of overt racism that it was in your face to the point that you're like, yeah, I know I'm not liked and it's because I'm different. Um, coming to Australia, I think the biggest differentiator for me, um, I grew up here, you know, um, being the only, me and my siblings being the only black people in most primary schools and high schools we went to. Um, high school it started getting a bit more diverse as I was finishing up, <laughs> but definitely um, before that, only the only um, kind of black family. And I think what I realized quickly about Australia is that racism is very much kind of ingrained in microaggressions in in um, a way that I wasn't really used to. So it was never overtly in my face. So that was one thing I, I, I realized where it was a lot harder to pick up racism here. Um, and I think that's how it's shown itself along my journey. So um, because it wasn't in my face, I realized that racism, as far as I knew it, wasn't going to be a blocker to me. I knew that people would see me differently and sometimes they treated me differently, but it didn't stop me from following my education um, route and my parents telling me it's fine. You know, all you got to do is like get a degree and you'll be fine essentially. So that's what I did. I, I went along to get my degree um, and kind of went along knowing that I was a black girl, but I never, like, I know I was treated differently sometimes, but it never really overtook my ambition and, and I stayed confident within who I am throughout that whole process only until um, I had finished university I felt like I had all the right tools to kickstart 
the next step of my journey, which is through employment. And we all know getting that dream job. Um, I uh, did a bachelor of business. I majored in HR. I fell in love with HR because I realized, wait a minute, you can get paid and, you know, do things with people and help people grow. And, I, and they're like, yeah, there's a section for that. It's called human resources. I'm like, this is where I belong. <laughs> um, so essentially, Going into the job market, um, I went in there very confident as a graduate because I knew I, well, I thought I had all the ingredients I needed. I had my degree, I had the personality, and I had the confidence, which I know a lot of people, you know, build through that process. So I went into there, um, to that experience, really thinking I'd be fine. And that's where I think when you say what is the biggest thing I've had to overcome is essentially going into the job market at that point and not being able to get a job. It was um, from when I graduated um, until um, the time I was able to kind of kickstart my career, that was about two years. Um, and within that, say about 50 different jobs. I mean, I, I, ne I was trying to get into a career. So I was looking at graduate programs and all these things, but had no support and may get an interview sometimes, but never would actually get a professional job, which is the story of many um, migrants uh, who have come, some based on not having lived experience. I did have, as some not having, sorry, um, experience in Australia. I did have experience in Australia, the usual hungry jacks and all of that. But then I finally realized after a while that my difference was definitely a element in that process. As much as I, as I didn't want to believe it, I realized, wait, this is where the microaggressions actually become real blockers and um, real um, uh, barriers to me even kickstarting my career um, until I was able to get a job in, to, uh, in through a diversity program that was aimed at people like me. So um, a diversity program aimed at African-Australian um, um, uh, graduates who were having trouble um, kickstarting their career because somebody had recognized, wait a minute, there's a lot of African-Australian migrants who all are really highly educated, but just aren't able to get into their career after graduating. And I was perfect for that. So that's how I started my HR career through that program um, and was able to kind of just thrive after that because what did I just need? <laughs> just an opportunity. And it's unfortunate it had to just be through a diversity program recognizing that we have a lot of barriers and bias as opposed to just the normal recruitment system. Yeah, you're right. It's get, getting your foot in the door and, and striking for me, getting your foot in the door in human resources. And I, <laughs> I, I wonder whether, you know, how much that plays into your difficulties with that graduate role, because from a corporate perspective, HR is that you're that first point of entry for so many people as they as they grow their their company, um, but equally having that diversity at that at the the gates so the opening is is so important. So thank you for sharing sharing that process and so openly. And I think that would also resonate with those who are still who are graduates and struggling mm. even now to get that land that interview. I think things have only gotten harder through pandemics and having to engage remotely and virtually um, and really just sort of shedding a light on uh, some of the the issues that can, can arise from a cultural perspective. Mm. Because I think the difference between, or the difference from when 
you and I maybe were starting out. I'm a I'm a I'm a little bit little bit older than you, but that that move from say moving here in the 90s and just being things being for want of a better descriptor black and white mm. like it's, they were a bit different but you can kind of get through merit will speak through and to today when there is that zeitgeist for not only recognizing and acknowledging that bias is existing into the detriment of certain groups but actually calling it out as something that really needs to be addressed mm-hmm. um because I think in Australia a lot of people's experience similar to yours was like that's just kind of the way it is yeah and yeah sort of, you know you've got your education you've got all the skills you've got that confidence you'll get there yeah okay yeah it'll be a- it's only a matter of time there's nothing you know it's not bias that's stopping you from getting it and, uh, we, and there's so many conversations in explaining that to kind of the majority and they really struggle to understand it. They just see it as you're not the only one who can't get a job. And I completely understand that because if anything, it's about looking at the different intersectionalities of people who can't get jobs and the people who can, but to take away from our experiences, I think is the part that I try to really, um, you know, clearly define that the experiences are different and but you're taking away from my experience to just say it's just the way it is I can bring you a hundred other stories thousands of stories that are very coincidentally similar to mine um and there are some trends that to shy away from that is to shy away from our lived experience a hundred percent and now Betty that story has really started to to shed light on the birth of DivTal. But how did you end up connecting with a fellow South Sudanese Australian, your co-founder, Lorna Deng, and take us through the steps from getting that first corporate job, which could so easily have been the end of the journey. You're you're in now. It's all good. (laughs) Off you go. But what what drove you both to create DivTal to, to really say that we need to change this up for everyone coming through? Yeah. Um, So I started my career in HR in um, National Australia Bank, to be specific. Um, And that was where the diversity program um, uh, was ran through. So um, there were all corporate jobs through the the bank. And this is where I met my co-founder, Lorna. So I started in 2013 and she started... um, I think in 2015 or 16. So uh, I met her on um, my level, level seven, which is where all HR sit. Um, and she came along, who's um, coming through the same program that I did. Um, of course, <laughs> seeing another South Sudanese woman walk down my level, uh, me being the only South Sudanese woman and at that point the only black woman um, in the whole HR team, of course, I was going to notice, besides the fact that she was obviously strikingly, you know, very beautiful, t- tall Sassanese woman, my people, um, I was, I, I noticed her and, and I knew she had come through the program. So I welcomed her with open arms and we connected just based on our own lived experiences. But also what I realized about Lorna, she had that similar passion, that passion of wanting to um, uh, essentially play it forward and understanding that 
why did we both have to, we're both fantastic. Why did we both have to come to this diversity program? And how come there's not anyone else that looks like us that has come, hasn't come through any of the other recruitment processes? It's not a coincidence. Um, so we can, we quickly shared that passion and we found ourselves going to a lot of community events together, um, doing a lot of after work events where we would connect with other people doing, um, work in the community space. So we quickly got known to be kind of Betty and Lorna who are in a lot of these spaces who, who wanted to have a voice. Um, and at that point, a lot of these spaces were growing and we were quite fortunate to be able to join them. But then um, in terms of how, you know, DivTal was born, we essentially attended a socialpreneurship, um, entrepreneurship hackathon that was ran by Incubate Foundation. I actually sit on Incubate Foundation board now. So uh, there's also a story to that. But essentially Incubate Foundation um, run an organization where they help African Australians realize their potential Um just not through employment, but also through entrepreneurship. So they ran the first ever African-Australian tailored socialpreneurship hackathon. And I've never walked into a much more exciting space. You know, most spaces are not people who look like me, let alone uh, people who look like me where we're told to sit down and solve some of our own social issues. And Lorna and I attended it. It was a full weekend. It was um, sponsored through KPMG. So it was in a very nice building. And uh, we essentially went to that socialpreneurship and that's where our entrepreneurship spirit was born. Because the way Lorna and I, uh, we sat on a table was trying to solve employment issues. Um, and long story short, we were able to uh, we were on the same table and we legit pushed each other and like, ah, like the idea generation of, of it all really helped us really realize that we have this other spirit we didn't even know we had in us. And I call it the entrepreneurial spirit was born. <laughs> the flame was born. And because we won, uh, we came, our idea came second um, on that table. And I think Lorna and I drove most of the idea, although there was another two people on the table. Um we came second, and as part of that, you were able to put in an application for a uh, accelerator program. So we did that. We looked at each other. We're like, should we do this? And we essentially said, you know, we've always wanted to pay it forward, uh, uh, play it forward, and um, and we've always seen that there's all these discrepancies, biases, gaps within the HR system. Let's let's put it out there. So we put up an idea of I think then was a job agency. Obviously, ideas change. Um, Diftal looks very different from what it was when we put in put it in as an idea and accelerator program. But that's how we started our journey and how Diftal was born. Um, it was just a concept at the time, and we put it out and people loved it. We didn't even have a product yet, <laughs> Dashi, but we put out we put out our two photos. We put out the concept, and we were supported by um, a micro micropreneurship. Um, tailored accelerator program through Hatch Quarter, um, which is how DivTel was born. And uh, it went live in 2020, right in the midst of a pandemic um, <laughs> uh, in June, July. So, yeah, long time since we started our accelerator program back in 2018, um, all the way to it being launched in um, 2020. Wow. So pretty much over a weekend, it just started and then snowballed and you just kept putting one foot in front of the other and building it up to yep. two years later, it's live. That is, that's such 
an inspirational story again for those who maybe sat in their corporate desks and knowing that there's something else uh, in them that they need to explore. And also... Not even knowing it, Dashi, because that's something else you don't know. I encourage everyone to be in spaces that make them feel a bit uncomfortable and takes them away from that. You know, my dream has always been to be a corporate. Like, I'm like, I want to climb the ladder. Oh, but there's so many biases and so many hurdles. So I want to have big, big shout out that we need the army trying to um, climb the corporate ladder, but we also need the army trying to, you know, um, create new solutions and create their own businesses and break the mold in another direction as well. <laughs> so the army needs to go all around the wall, but also be inside the castle as well. So that's the best analogy I can think of. <laughs> I could not agree more. And Div Talent in itself is for you. It is that social entrepreneurship. Uh, it covers that territory, but you're actually feeding that all back through to help those who do want to keep climbing the, the corporate ladder. And I think that's what's so uh, intriguing and enticing about the concept and what would probably give, you know, investors, if you're, if you're looking to keep funding and growing or what would give people that sense of how this could really scale to something, um, much bigger if it can, if it can uh, be given those, those wings or the fuel at least. I um, love the pitch, Dashi, please pitch <laughs> us. <laughs> yes, no, definitely. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a bit about that because you're developing DivTal, but you're still continuing a professional corporate HR role. Correct. And, you know, again, post-pandemic or the tail end of a pandemic, hopefully, we, we've seen that sense of the great reshuffle, the great resignation, a lot more people trying to develop these side hustles to, to find a different way of doing things from that corporate norm. Do you think... It's particularly commonplace. It's commonplace generally for people to be juggling those two. Or do you think that there that funding struggles can actually force a lot of, in particular, minority-run businesses to keep a lot of those plates spinning in order to grow? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Um, I think you know, based on my experience and um, now being in quite a few networks. Um, of other women of color who are either starting their own business or have their own business, I definitely think there's a trend in funding being um, a strong barrier to letting go of your nine to five. Um, I think I think <laughs> my dream is to be able to go let go of my nine to five. I love my nine to five. I'm I, I'm using it as a way to continuously learn because the space that I'm in and working with employers is allows me to understand what journey they're at. So I'm able to still utilize it, but I know that there's a way that I can um, you still learn even by not having the nine to five. So I have to say, based on my own experience, funding um, and relying on that nine to five um, and knowing that you know, um, a lot of us are grassroots um, and uh, are looking for investors or looking to be able to keep up a similar lifestyle um, while our businesses are growing and thriving. Um, we don't have that privilege to be able to do that. And we don't want to start that off in debt, you know. And I know that there's quite a few stories out there of women of color really relying on starting on debt. When I say starting on debt, going through business loans or 
um, you know, using up their own savings to kickstart it. But that is not um, a way to be sustainable in a business. We all know that. That's why there's investment um, and, you know, equity structures and, um, you know, that element. Um, but we are not, uh, we don't, we're not in those spaces. Um, and uh, you would have seen, you know, the statistics that came out of the co-cooperative research around, um, you know, uh, the investment um, uh, and essentially who was getting the investment. And I think three percent of investment um, was going to women. But uh, in terms of women of color, it was, um, I think, 0.03 yeah, zero point zero three. So basically, yep. zero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, and this it tells you a real story of, you know, not being a part of this investment pool, um, and there it's there and it's growing, and we're still not be we're not in it. And when I can say I'm part of that zero point the zero percent because, um, you know, uh, in growing Diftal, it has been Lorna and I really investing a lot of our time our own savings into it because we believe in it. It's very much us believing that it can be scaled sustainable. There are very similar organizations that are thriving in uh, in countries like the UK um, who have investment from large organizations such as Google and just being recognized in that it's seen as exactly what it is, a talent pool, um, a gap, um, a way to get to win the war on talent, because to win the war on talent, you need to be looking at market gaps um, and and the people um, that are within your own um, society. Uh, so there's a whole pool of talent that has been untapped. And if you really want to do win this, um, you know, great resignation year, you need to start looking at the untapped market. And you can do that through organizations like Diftal. And that's why we continue to thrive. Um, and we know that as we get bigger as a network of women of color, all trying to build these amazing um, organizations. Um, and until that's recognized, we will continue to fight. But um, we will all will create our own table, which is what we're looking to do now. But we'd love for more investors to be looking at us and seeing how we can be breaking a lot of these larger issues um, within the recruitment space for us in particular. Um, but yes, Dashi, don't get me started. Um, it definitely is a big issue um, and a concern. And I'm so glad there's a finally data and, um, you know, shout out to Co-Cooperative for developing that data because, you know, what, what, what gets measured gets done and here's the evidence right in black and white for everyone to see. And it says zero. <laughs> says <Yeah>. zero. <laughs> it's a real call to action for sure. Um, and thank you for shedding that light. We connected through that quest for funding because myself and uh, some other fantastic women based out in Melbourne set up uh, an organization called Women for, for Impact, which, Betty, you spoke on that uh, on, on that panel to set up that separate parallel table, get mm. the legs out from under it, get some chairs around it and get some funding to go directly to those women. And I think at the time we spoke, the report and the data wasn't even there. And yeah. that in itself, it launched, yeah. that it's taken us to 2022. Yeah. To, to to get that that data is is an interesting data point in and of itself yeah um and now we have we have a start but um but it would be great to start to see 
that startup world and the entrepreneurship world get the backing that it needs for minority-led organizations in the same way that back in the early 2000s or 2010, you were trying to get that role in a corporate um, organization. Yeah, yeah. Let's fix our let's fix our own structures and systems as opposed to creating specific ones for the problem. Um, it's a band-aid solution. Um, and not to say I'm against diversity programs. I came through diversity. That's how I, you know, that's where I got my opportunity. But um I am I do see it as a band-aid solution um to not going into your normal structures and taking away the bias from those processes. So it's exact same thing with the startup ecosystem. Um, you know, we'll create our own table, but you know, your table also needs to be looked at. <laughs> um, and essentially you'll never grow as an ecosystem if you don't start recognizing all these amazing solutions and um, changing your mindset. So no, completely agree, Dashi. A hundred percent. So Betty, what's what's next for DivTal in the very near future? And where would you like to be in 10 years' time? Near future, um, DivTal is working towards um, its first round of investment. Um, So we are looking for investors. Um, So shout out to any investors who are listening to the podcast. But yes, we're moving towards being ready to find the right investor for us. And we're being women of color. We're going to be very particular about who that's going to be. you know, whether that's a venture capitalist and or, you know, um, have a way it comes to us. But we know that we have a great product in DivTal and it can be scaled all the way. Right now we're dealing with inclusive recruitment, but as you start building talent pipelines through that inclusive recruitment process, guess what happens? It becomes a progression conversation. Once it gets to the progression conversations, then we're talking about inclusive leadership. So you will... Um, be seeing DIFTAL, maybe currently in the inclusive recruitment space. But if we were to get funding, we would be looking to build out the next, and we call it the BIPOC employee life cycle. Um, And in the BIPOC employee life cycle, we're dealing with the current struggles of um, inclusive recruitment, but guess what? They'll be in the organizations and they'll you can already see conversations around progression struggles. Um, and then you'll then be moving towards conversations about leadership and then eventually board. Um, so we will be, DivTal will be right there trying to find new solutions for all of that. Um, and that's where we see ourselves in 10 years, essentially being um, a really big, um, prominent uh uh, brand for DivTal, but within that, we essentially concentrate on the BIPOC employee experience. And you can find us, um, you know, uh, with products around uh, and solutions around um, progression, um, inclusive leadership, and we will continue to still be working in the inclusive recruitment space. So that's how we see ourselves. <laughs> um, we also, um, I would say, even beyond the 10 years, we don't want to exist anymore. If you think about, you know, when you ask uh, a lot of founders, do you want like to sell it? Do you want this? We just, um, I think Lorna and I both have said we don't want to exist as DivTal anymore because we're not required because um, a lot of these processes have been, um, you know, uh, understood. Everyone's on the same page and the right 
decisions are being made that we're off to something else you know um i also see myself as being um one of the first um hopefully sassanese women who become an actual investor so look out investors um i'm about to you know uh start uh um looking towards becoming my own investor and investing in my own people as well but only a matter of time <laughs> so that's i have big dreams dashi <laughs> There is just so much in this conversation to take just from overcoming hurdles wherever you are, from the power of confidence to education to entrepreneurship through self-belief, through doing the work, through to actually just developing something that changes an ecosystem so much that you're, that you're no longer necessary so that you can move on to the next thing and to tackle the problem of investment by becoming investors in our own right from generating wealth as minority groups so that you can spread that love. Like I just love everything about that, that, that cycle. Uh, I love the idea of, of having a life cycle for um, BIPOC and I put, we need it for more minorities and intersections so that, so that you sort of end up with that kind of Venn diagram that mm. ends up expanding from the inside out. So yeah. like, as you say that it, by the next generation, it's just the norm and not, uh, not a nice to have or, yeah. uh, or a struggle. So I feel like you've created, um, a wonderful picture to leave us with. Um, I'll include, um, links to, to DivTal and you on, um, your LinkedIn profile and make sure that we can amplify this to any investors, uh, out there. I know that it is just a question of, of when and not if, um, and I think the sooner the better so that we can get this <laughs> 10-year cycle churning so that you're off. Oh, amazing. No, thank you, Dashi. It's been really great to have this conversation with you. Keep up the fantastic work, um, uh, you know, walking into the Women for Impact networking launch. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to just this network growing, um, but also the pitch nights that are going to come uh, coming up. Um, so keep up the great work. Uh, and yeah, thank you for inviting me to have this conversation. Really enjoyed it. Likewise, Betty, my pleasure. And thank you so much. I wish you all the very, very best. And thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What do you like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open, 